hello and welcome to season two, episode five of Who the Hell is Norfolk? This is, of course, the companion podcast, The Far Better Researched, A History of England by my co-host, Mr. David Beeson. How are you doing, Daddy? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you again. Yes. Yeah, so, um, well, uh, last episode we left uh, King Charles having hurried out of London and we're going to be covering uh, episode 18 of your podcast called First Civil War, colon, The Fight Gets Going. And this covers, well, the beginnings of the English Civil War, which is only one of three civil wars going on. There's a, there's a, there's a Scottish War, an Irish War, and an English War. Three English wars. No, the, the three English civil wars. Oh, my God. Okay, so... As so, well as wars in Ireland and Scotland, uh, yes. yes. <laughs> so, yeah, not, 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 not the best of times, I suppose. It was a lousy time. Twelve years of war, I would say. Nine years in, uh, with England involved, but for Ireland, of course, they went even longer because you know when when you're going to do destruction, what better place to do it than <laughs> in Ireland if you're an Englishman? And of course, even after all these wars, Ireland still gets the short end of the stick because uh, we're not. This is talking about the future, but Cromwell is possibly even worse to the Irish than the these other guys have been. Um, By the way, so well, before we go too far, let yeah. me just say that the Cromwell campaign in Ireland is the last stage of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. Ah, so, okay. Uh, it just goes straight on. 1649, after the death of uh, of Charles. See, uh, I, he, I always uh, find it a bit peculiar when, when, when uh, a regime changes, you know, they're yeah. deeply uh, against the previous regime, but then carries on their wars. Uh, well, I mean, you know, what you've got is, uh, on the one hand, you've got wars about who shall rule in England. Uh, and then a separate thing is, uh, in a sense, that's why I think maybe the Irish wars ought to be treated somewhat separately from the others. Yeah. Because uh, what you're talking about there is how England, whoever's in charge in England, how England should rule Ireland. And right. uh, the answer to that is that the Irish don't get a say, basically. Yeah. And also, I guess the... The parliamentarian, the parliamentarians, or the republicans, as it were, were even more anti-Catholic than the king was. I mean, if anything, the king was relatively pre- relatively friendly towards Catholics. Yes, exactly. Um, yes. So I suppose that. But nobody sense. was friendly to a subject people that they wanted to keep well subjected. Oh well, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, we have initially the king rushes off to York, right, north of England. Uh, yes, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he eventually raises his standard, which is the site. The, you know, the, it's almost like the starter's flag for the fight uh, in Nottingham. <laughs> but yeah, he went to York first. I, I think the point I made in the in, in in the original episode is that he was joined there by a lot of uh, nobles. And you know, we always think of the civil wars, the English civil wars, being Parliament versus the King. But you must remember that there are two houses to Parliament, uh, and the House of Lords is, you know, was much more significant then than it is now, much more powerful then than it is now. And most of the lords actually went with the king. Yeah, th- this is the this is the f- the forever topic of mine about trying to figure out, you know, exactly how power is distributed and all the, the who supports what. So yeah, for yes, the, so the lords are mostly on the king's side. I suppose that makes a kind of intuitive sense, it doesn't it? But for yeah. example, you point out you point out that the navy goes with the parliamentarians. Yeah, see, I mean, there wasn't, not all the lords went with the uh, king by any means. There was uh, several leading lords uh, fighting on the parliamentary side. And one of them uh, was the 
I can't remember, Earl of Northumberland, I think, um, who, uh, well, as his title suggests, his uh, lands were up in the north, Mm -hmm. uh, which was the part of England that was most subject to invasion from Scotland. Uh, And you'll remember that indeed, before the English Civil Wars got going, uh, Charles went to war with the Scots. Yes. So Northumberland is the is a guy who feels threatened by the kind of behaviour that the king is engaging in. He also didn't think that the king was right to uh, you know, do things like dissolve Parliament and rule in his own name. But so but he, so, he he somehow was very powerful within the navy, I suppose. Is what he was appointed. Uh, I think it's called Lord High Admiral. Do you remember uh, oh, Duke yeah. of Buckingham was Lord High Admiral at one point? Right, right. So almost by chance, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Charles appointed him because, you know, he thought he was a good guy, yeah? Yeah. But it, in the end, when, you know, the, you know <laughs> when the chips were down, he sided more with Parliament than with the King. And but I mean, so presumably, I mean, yes, okay, the Lords need to be on one side or the other, but the, the fighting soldiers also. And is it possible that the Navy... You know, because it's not beholden to specific lands and, you know, the more traditional. Exactly. I mean, it was it was a professional service. So, you know, you had sailors who worked as sailors. You know, I'm not saying it was nice, but, uh, yeah. uh, you know, you, you'd be a sailor for a long time. Yeah, you, would, you didn't just, it wasn't like a militia band where you were, you know, you were the local baker and then someone said, come on, we've got to go and do some fighting. And so you took off your apron and picked up a, a pike. Yeah, uh, the sailors were sailors. And the navy was national rather than local, and what used to happen? I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a specialist on all this yet, but I, as I understand it, each year you named a summer fleet. I think they called it something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, so it was basically the fleet for the year, and there's a whole bunch of ships, and you appointed captains. Yeah, uh, and there'd be a lord high admiral and a deputy, and uh, what happened is Northumberland. Uh, agreed the list of captains with the king and then submitted it to parliament, which is what you used to do, yeah, it was in the past. And and this was after the king had already absconded from London, so... Yes, it was 1642, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes, so, yes. so by presenting so, it to parliament, he's, he's, almost, he's almost betraying the king. That Well, exactly, that's precisely what the king thought. He thought he was being betrayed. So when, when the parliament said, look, you can appoint the deputy, uh, the, the king sort of went into a pout and said, no, I won't. Uh, so Parliament said, "Fine, well, we will then." And they appointed. The, yeah, so they they did the job. Well, they appointed the Earl of Warwick, another noble, you see, yeah. as vice admiral. And then they. So now, so now they have the loyalty of the navy completely because they, yeah, they rubber stamped his decisions and. They, they, yeah. They, yeah, absolutely. They they went through this of captains and they removed all the captains from the list that they thought well, they couldn't count yeah, on. Yeah. So you ended up with the navy and Warwick. You see, one of the nice things about Warwick is that he'd been a privateer. And a successful one. And a lot of the sailors had sailed with him, and you know, and they'd done well, and they liked him. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so that's how that's how it happened that the navy was on the parliamentary side as opposed to the king. He's there mustering his forces, the king, and he isn't particularly delighted with the support he's getting. Uh, I guess he expected more. Yeah. Uh, and and my understanding is that yeah, the parliamentarians had the support of most cities, and of course the navy. Whereas the king was more rural and... Well, he had some cities with him, didn't he? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, burghers would mostly be with Parliament. Right. I mean, they're the people who elected their commons and so forth. So, yes, they would tend to be with him. And certainly London went with Parliament. Yeah, right. right. In a big way. This is just Brexit all over again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so we have, and of course, you know, it's a civil war, so this is always the ugliest type of thing. We have, you give a specific example of families being split by it. Yes, it was the, the father-son team. Yeah, yeah, the Vernies. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, they'd sat in Parliament together, but then they ended up on opposite sides of the, in war. the civil war. Yeah. And, the, and the father went with the king and the son went the with... The son him. with Parliament. And the father was killed at uh, Edge Hill and uh, his son was so distraught, you know, one would expect yeah, of course. to be yeah, distraught yeah, yeah. by the death of his father, uh, that he gave up and uh, I think actually went abroad. I, uh, he, he would have no further... It's like, screw this. Anything further to do with it. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Screw this for a game of soldiers. <laughs> <Precisely>. More literally <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but also, uh, yeah, as you also point out in the episode, it's this k- typical problem of when you have an anti-regime force, there's not necessarily a, a sort of unity and philosophy within that force, like different interpretations of what they're fighting for. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and you know, the, the Presbyterians, for instance, were not uh, uh, alone in Parliament. There were other people who were, uh, you know, uh, much more moderate Protestants. Um, there were people who felt that, uh, yes, uh, the king had gone too far, but that didn't mean that Parliament could operate without royal authority. I mean, there was a lot of mixed feelings. Uh, there were people on the on the royalist side who felt that maybe the king had exceeded his yeah, authority. A lot of people, I think, would like to have got back to uh, what they saw as you know, the, uh, the position beforehand where king and parliament ruled together, each accepting uh, you know, the rights of the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I mean, nobody wants civil war. As you point out, this is this was the bloodiest war in return in terms of percentage of the English population killed. Yes, obviously, civil wars are always going to have an advantage on that kind of competition. Yeah, because there's no foreigners involved. Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. every death is a is an is American a home death, death yeah. or a British English death. Yeah, or a British death. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> quite so. Um, but but also like yeah, the, the 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 fractions within the sides. Yeah, it makes me think of. Ode to Catalonia when um, homage to Catalonia. Oh, sorry, homage to Catalonia. Yeah, when when he's in Barcelona fighting because he happened to sign up with the anarchists. Not really fully. He just wanted to fight against Franco. Yes. And at one point, he's in Barcelona fighting communists and shooting across the rooftops. And he knows on on the other side, there's one of his friends who happened to sign up with the communists when he turned yes. up, and they're wasting time shooting at each other. Very eye-opening sequence that I was. I, I think it is, yeah. Uh, um, and yeah, uh, it's one of the tragedies of the Spanish Civil War, actually, that the Franco side was very heavily united. I mean, partly through violence. For instance, there was a phalangist movement in Spain, uh, a bit like the Italian fascists, so like Mussolini's mm-hmm. uh, uh, movement, and Franco managed to basically decapitate it with help from the Republic. That the Republic executed the. Uh, the leader of the Falangist movements, uh, Jose Antonio Primo de, de Rivera. Uh, and then, you know, what Franco did is bring the Falangists entirely under his control and eliminated other people who weren't prepared to accept that. So there was no division on the Franco side. Yeah, yeah no, no, no silly shootouts on Exactly. Rooftops. Whereas, you know, on the, uh, on the Republican side, you had Republicans, you had liberals, you had... Uh, Communists, you communists, had uh, anarchists. anarchists, and you had actually all well belonged to a group called the Pome, who were sometimes seen as Trotskyists. Trotsky didn't see mm. them as Trotskyists, but uh, a lot of other people did. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so they were fighting amongst each other, and obviously it doesn't help. But, yeah, so the point is Edge Hill, not necessarily the most 
important battle other than it's the first so that you know it first kicks things one, off yeah. Yeah. yeah the first big one we we uh, that's that's where the father of the father son team Edmund Verney yeah Edmund and his his son the son was Ralph yeah so yeah and so Edmund Verney's killed and all we, the legend says that his body was never found but his hand a hand of his was still clinging onto the the pole that held up the standard <laughs> Part of it, yeah. yes, yes, yes. yes, and then of course, yeah. So we, we also got to the nomenclature here. They are the nobles. They are a bunch of a lot of them are cavalry men, and they're known as the cavaliers. Yes, and they're the and this group is dashing and and yeah, romantic and exciting. Uh, whereas the part and undisciplined. And, uh, well, one one group <laughs> in particular. No, there's the there's the one contingent of cavalry led by. Oh, I think, the, by, I think is it, was... it the son of the king of the platinum, or or is it all the cavalry were like this? Uh, the Elector of the Palatinate, yes. Yeah, so uh, it, that was, uh, yes, it was Charles is Charles II. So Charles the First. Uh, no, James. Hang on, James. Oh. <laughs> this always happens to us. <laughs> James the First or Sixth. Yeah. Daughter. So who was Charles the First's sister? Married the Elector of the Palatinate, and they had. Children, one of whom was Rupert, the Prince Rupert of the Palatinate, who uh, went and fought in the English Civil War on his uncle's side, and he was a cavalry commander. Yeah. But it wasn't only his cavalry that behaved in this way. I mean, he may actually have been an overall commander of the cavalry. I don't know, but you know, the cavalry wasn't very controllable. They would rush in and you know win a you know, a tremendous victory against the infantry and then they'd get off their horses and do some looting so you couldn't pull them back and use them again uh and that was you know, a major limitation on their effectiveness right right one of the things i think that came out of edge hill is that you know just relying on militia volunteer militia uh wasn't enough neither side could impose its will on the other it was basically a draw i, I mean technically it was a royalist victory because the parliamentarians left the field. Yeah. But uh, neither side had comprehensively defeated the other. And both sides had to think about what the heck we're going to do to make, you know, make ourselves more effective. Yeah. And of course, one of the guys, I think I t- uh, tell this story in the episode, one of the guys who showed up right at the end, too late to be involved in the fighting, was the man who's going to make the difference uh, you know, above all others. And that's Oliver Cromwell. Yeah, so he's, a, he's he makes a very late appearance. He's not he's too late to actually take part in the fighting. But we you know this is we we all know anybody who knows anything about the English Civil War knows that this man's going to be very important. And as as we know, he he is a relation. He is related to Thomas Cromwell, the the advisor to Henry VIII. Do we know precisely the connection? Uh, this is the kind of question that's impossible. Like, how many generations have happened between? More or less. Oh gosh, I haven't actually counted them. I don't think, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's uh, uh, well. What happened was that Thomas Cromwell had a sister, I think it was, who married uh, someone called Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, yes. Uh, it was the great-great-grandfather of Oliver, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, a man called Morgan Williams, and he married Thomas Cromwell's sister, Catherine. Okay. Okay. But that would make that family actually called Williams, yeah? That would, that yeah, would be Yeah, they, they, they chose to take the... Cromwell name. I suppose it had more cachet. Yeah, it did it had more cachet, so they so they used uh, that name instead. Until, of course, uh, Cromwell became you know, Cromwell's name became uh, 
not such a <laughs> yes. badge of honor. Somewhat muddy. Yeah. Actually, yeah, it could actually lead to you getting imprisoned or executed because you were on the wrong side, at which point they went back to Williams. But then later on, when uh, the Cromwell name was uh, rehabilitated again, uh, they uh, the family went back to calling themselves Cromwell. Yes. But that's it. So it's great-great-grandfather. That's it. Well, but, well or Thomas Cromwell was specifically a great-great-grandfather. Uncle, I suppose. Uncle, yes. I yeah. suppose so, yes, that's right. Uh, but yes. Okay, fantastic. Now, uh, I think it's time for us to enter this exciting new segment of the podcast, which I want to call uh, Michael Watched a YouTube Video. That's not that unusual, of course. <laughs> I think it's very exciting and everyone should be excited, okay? We are very excited. <laughs> uh, so this is just you know, one of the, 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 mind, the, sort of, the small victories that the you know, social media algorithms have over us where you recommended a video to me that uh, actually somehow seemed directly relevant uh, to what we're talking about. Uh, so it has the rather regrettably clickbaity title, Why Was 17th Century England So Far Behind the Rest of Europe? And it turns out this is actually more about art history than anything else. It is uh, presented by a man whose name I will no doubt... Uh, Mispronounced. Januszak. Uh, I don't I, know if that's how you pronounce it. I think it's Januszak. I found a video Januszczak. of him oh, referring to himself. Okay. And, and the W is yeah. a ver. Yes. Yeah, so Valdemar Januszak. You know, obviously a very Polish name, but the man is absolutely a, uh, is, a, is a British art historian whose parents came from Poland. And uh, yes, he, he initially wrote for The Guardian, which for listeners who don't know, is, it was a more left-wing broadsheet in, in, in the UK, and now writes for The Sunday Times, which is somewhat more right-wing. This is relevant because part of the joy of trying to interpret his video is like fi- finding out where, what his you know, background is and where he's coming from. So yeah, so you've also watched this video. Uh-huh. Uh, so in your own words, what, what does it cover more or less, this uh, video? Well, essentially, it covers the English Baroque. Um, and, you know, I have to say that uh, uh, he introduced me to a couple of people that I either had never heard of or uh, only knew a little about. I mean, the one I'd never heard of was William Dobson, who was a, uh, a portrait painter of some considerable talent. Um, so that was interesting. Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, Nuschak has extremely high words of praise for him. He, he says that... He thinks that he was the first uh, English-born painting genius. Um, like a lot, he he says a lot of people would say it's more Ho, wait Hobart. Wait, what did he call him? <laughs> I should know this. Uh, Hogarth. Hogarth. That's it. He said, yeah. yeah. So he says he says that many people would say Hogarth is the first English-born uh, genius of painting, but he 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 suggests William Dobson, who no one's I never heard of him either. Uh, and it's true, his paintings were uh, very attractive. But also what's fascinating about this is that it covers basically the time we've been talking about. So the, the, the famous adventure to Spain that Charles took with uh, Buckingham. Yes. Januszczak is making the argument that while in France and Spain, he developed a taste for uh, this, you know, Renaissance, well now Baroque st- style of painting and brought it back with him to England. Um, yes. And yeah, there's a lot of debate about, yeah, we, we've, often, we've talked a lot about when did the Renaissance happen? When did this or that happen? And this is clearly specifically looking at painting and later architecture, at least uh, in this particular video. Because we agree, for example, Shakespeare is possibly the great figure of the English Renaissance. I seem to remember Yaroszczak. Is that how you pronounce yeah. it? 
uh, actually says that the Renaissance hadn't happened. In Again, England, I think I think he's really... talking about painting, yeah, uh, and architecture. Like Sh- okay. Shakespeare was writing this revolutionary uh, type of uh, play and literature, but still in you know timber and wattle buildings, you know these buildings that look like the Middle Ages, uh, right. and 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 the you know the Renaissance and Baroque hadn't arrived on those dimensions, yeah. But this is part of the what's fascinating about getting an alternative uh, viewpoint. Yes, I mean, it, it is very interesting. I, but I, I do think there's a couple of things that, that I would tend to disagree with. One of them is, I don't believe that any individual, including the king, uh, can really open the doors to a massive cultural revolution like that. Yeah? Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, after all, no one opened the doors to Shakespeare. You know, we're not, no one's saying that... Uh, uh, Henry VIII you know, made the writing of plays like Shakespeare's possible. Um, you know, that didn't happen that way. What you got was a lot of things happening. So you got people like Erasmus arriving in England, mm-hmm. uh, influencing people like Thomas uh, More. Uh, Thomas More. Uh, so these people start writing, because you know this is what Yenishak leaves out, is all the writing. Yeah? Yes. Uh, they start writing stuff uh, imbued with the thinking of what, has come to be known as the Re- as Renaissance humanism, mm-hmm. uh, where you're putting man much more at the centre of your considerations than in the past, you know, rather than entirely focusing on God. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's very much man in God's creation. There's no doubt at all that God remains all powerful. Yeah, but you know, you will study therefore man's creations as well. So you get really interested in classical antiquity, for instance, you know, yeah. reading. Aristotle and Plato and all the rest of it, because you know uh, you're interested in what man has done, uh, and you're interested in the psychology of man and in the problems that man faces. And you know, out of all that comes eventually, you know, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, wondering whether he should be or not be. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's a he's a tormented man, wondering, you know, what is wrong with you know. There's something rotten in the state of Denmark, he says. Uh, should he stay there and do something about it, or should he just kill himself? I mean, I, I, again, uh, I, agree, I agree with all this, though I think that, especially at this time, uh, having the king's blessing does make a big difference. I mean, don't forget... Of course you know, it does. Like we talk about, you know, the last artist we talked about was in the time of Henry VIII with uh, Holbein. He was a... Holbein, Holbein. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he was a, a, an artist of the court. And then here we have the same yes. thing. Charles comes back. First, he commissions these huge paintings from Rubens, you know, the master of the Northern Renaissance yeah. in Europe. And then Rubens' uh, st- uh, student, Van Dyck, turns up and actually becomes a court uh, artist again in England, and actually ends his life in England. And I think that does open the doors in the sense that it tells other artists, okay, this is the style now. But again, what's fascinating is the, is, is the parallels he makes between this Baroque style of painting and Catholicism, and of course we know that James and James I and Charles I were somewhat sympathetic to Catholicism, uh, the fact that uh, you know, Charles had married a Catholic after all, and many of the tensions with Parliament was due to that. Uh, and that, yeah, like, well, we talk about the Presbyterians in Scotland, I mean, one of, the, one of the, the consequences of the more extreme forms of Protestantism at the time, you know, Calvinism and what have you, is, is that they wanted to get rid of paintings, get rid of uh, garish decoration and keep things simple uh and yeah so like one of the things that surprised me about this video in particular is that Januszczak sort of presents the civil war and the, the death of charles as a great tragedy and of course you know no mention of the tyranny and the 11 years personal war or all the other stuff but again he you know, he's, his focus is on the art 
No, I, there's no doubt. I, I think court fashion has a much bigger effect on painting or architecture than it does on writing, because writing's cheaper, after all. You know, buying a book is neither here nor there, whereas paintings are... Expensive. They're, they're unique, and they're very expensive. And, of course, buildings are... Yeah, hundreds of times more expensive still. Yeah, you almost so, need you know, public money or the king's approval. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, so to, to, to get that kind of thing going. So, yeah, there is some truth in that. But, but I can't help feeling that it was also a bit like all the writing. It was also something that was in the air at the times. People wanted to build that kind of building. I mean, you know, look at fashion now. I mean, it happens all the time. All around where I live, uh, I see buildings, rather dull buildings, I think, being you know, going up houses. Which are all white blocks. Yeah, they're all the, uh, following you know, you, a, a similar pattern. Yeah, it seems to be the fashion. Yeah, though, yeah. and when I look at the 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 houses that were built you know, twenty years ago, they all seem to be roughly similar, and I think rather more attractive than the ones now. Uh, but they were all of them, you know, plastered with exposed brick between the you know yeah. uh, around the edges or whatever with plaster in between. Uh, sometimes with towers, uh, you know, and so forth. There, there was a different style, which was the taste of the time. And the taste of the time has changed again now. And I can't help feeling that... It probably would have uh, happened. It wasn't just down yeah. to Charles. Charles, I think, would certainly have given it a huge impact. You know, yeah. the, the court... I mean, the, most of the money was at the court. So, you know, uh, inevitably, that would give it a huge uh, uh, impulse to, to spread it. Yes. But um, I don't... And, and it's true also that, you know, Elizabeth and James... Both of them uh, gave considerable patronage to Shakespeare. So, you know, even in the writing, uh, court patronage was important. But I do think that there was a change taking place. And I think the answer to Yandrushak's question is that England was behind the rest of Europe simply because the Renaissance came from Italy. Yeah, it just took, it just, you know, so just geography, geography was the difference. Yeah. yeah, it took a while to get <laughs> yeah. here. But eventually people, not just, I would say, Charles, but and in any case, I mean, Charles's stay in Madrid was very, very tense. You know, I'm not sure how much time he spent saying... But he was there a long time, wasn't he? I mean, I presume he would have... Yes, he was several months. Yeah, several and he would have been, in, he he would have been in people's yeah. houses and he would have gone, he would have seen these paintings, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're you're right. Sorry, no, I, I withdraw. No, that's fair. Enough. That's a fair point. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but I can't help feeling that he wasn't alone in traveling on the continent and seeing things. And yeah, thinking, it's the combination oh, of, we... of developing the. T- I mean, one of the nice points in the video is when the Anishchak says that most of the time the British royal family has been somewhat wanting when it comes to aesthetics. You know, while the cameras are looking at a rather tacky set of uh, postcards with the the current royal family on. Uh, somewhat satirical but yeah this goes back to my other point is like you know watching this i'm like well you know obviously the politics of the presenter matter don't they and and i try to figure out like is he is he left wing is he right wing is he royalist is he what and honestly you know perusing his twitter feed you know i felt like i was some sort of uh stalker (laughs) going through but but yeah. uh, uh, yeah, he's he's reliably anti-brexit he's certainly anti-maga and the crazies over in america so it's not, you know, if he has any right wing feelings, it's certainly not on the you know the modern day populist extremes, and but but above all, anything he posted most of the time, his main politics was pro art. So if he's going to criticise the government, it's for lack of funding for art or, or or a closing of a museum or whatever, you know. So I think that's his priority, which kind of holds up if if you if you go with the idea that Charles was perhaps a more positive influence for art in England. Uh, in 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 this time, than the parliamentarians would have been, 
then maybe he would be a royalist for that specific context. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just think it's kind of valuable to get these different perspectives. Uh, well, yes, I mean, I find it very interesting to find out what he said about Blenheim Palace, which is, you know, rather later. And his video covers a much wider period than we've been talking about here. Uh, but, you know, so rather beyond our, uh, our uh, period, uh, he talks about uh, Blenheim Palace and how that was built and on Nicholas Hawksmore and his slightly uh, more weird style in architecture and the even weirder conspiracy things yeah. that were around. <laughs> That's obviously so, interesting. Yeah, I found that, kind of, <laughs> found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, by the way, that when, when he starts talking about John Vanbrugh, who was the architect of uh, Blenheim Palace, mm-hmm. uh, the thing that uh, came... To my mind, I, I've always loved this. Uh, he actually says that uh, you know, Blenheim weighs on the on the on the ground on the land like a wedding cake. You know, <laughs> yes. huge, sorry, no, sort of a, a huge cake you know, to celebrate yeah. something. And in this case, it's the victory at Blenheim. Yeah? Um, and he points out that other stately homes tended to lie lightly on the land. Mm. Yeah, and one of the things that I've always loved about Vanbrugh is that someone wrote a sort of mock epitaph of him. Um, which goes, under this stone, reader, survey, dead Sir John Vanbrugh's house of clay. Lie heavy on him, earth, for he laid many heavy loads on the <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> so when, when, when Anderson talks about you know, the weight of Vanbrugh's... Yeah, it may, <laughs> you can see that. He's not alone in having that opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. Okay, that's great. Right. Well, listen, so uh, yeah, I'm sure we, we could speak much more about this in fact yeah listeners by all means watch the video and you know tell us what you think by writing to who the hell is norfolk at gmail.com uh but in any case uh we will get back to the the i don't know how many civil wars there are at the, at the moment but we'll get back to them in the next episode uh in the meantime well let me just say thank you very much daddy it was a very fun time thank you thanks for setting this up